Tonight, we're going to return to one of the most uh, unique studies in the book of Romans that you've ever been a part of. And we began this uh, study in chapter 6 here in Romans um, a year ago. Uh, but we had to shut it down uh, partially because, or partway through it, because of the COVID situation, so we never finished it. So we're going to return to that uh, portion of Scripture here tonight. Romans 6.1 What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? That grace may increase, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or you do not do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we've been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin uh, might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And we'll stop right there. Now, since the last time that we were in this portion of Scripture, obviously a lot has happened in the world, and a lot has happened in this fellowship. In fact, many of you weren't uh, with us. So just to try to give you a little bit of a background of uh, this uh, series and where we're at, I began uh, this series in the Book of Romans back in July of 2019 in preparation for a trip that I was taking with one of my close uh, friends and fellow pastor Gordon Broadbent, we were going to go to Russia and teach. Uh, many years back, I can't remember it was 10, 12, 15 years ago, I had gone to Russia and taught the book of Romans. Well, supposedly I was supposed to teach the book of Romans, but I only made it halfway through because that's kind of my style and kind of slow. So I made it through halfway the, through the first uh, half of the book of Romans. So they asked me to come back and that's the trip we were taking two years ago to finish the of the book. And again, that was in November of 2019. So in preparation for my upcoming trip, I started teaching through this book in the uh, in the evenings here, uh, kind of a rapid pace. I, I ta- this is the first book I taught when I came here 16 years ago, right? So I was trying to go a little bit faster than I did the first time, and it had been so long since we'd been a part of the book uh, as the congregation, or since I taught it to the congregation. I decided to go back here at Cornerstone and, and start at chapter one and kind of fast work my way uh, forward. But it became evident to me at some point I was not going to make it uh, through the entire book before I'd leave to Russia. So I made the decision to stop teaching the first half of the book uh, to us in the evening. And we went to the second half of the book. We went to chapter nine. Now there's going to be a test on this afterwards. So I hope you're taking notes, right? But we never made it that far either because uh, there's just so much uh, wonderful truth here in the book. I remembered thinking, um, you know, if I remember right, we got about halfway through chapter five and then we stopped halfway through chapter 5, and I jumped over 5, 6, 7, and 8, and we then just jumped right into chapter 9. So we did 9, 10, and 11, and again, to help me prepare for my trip. And once I got back from uh, the trip, the plan was to pick it up in chapter 5 and chapter 6, and then jump over 9, 10, and 11, and then pick it up in chapter 12. And that's what we did in part until COVID came. And then we made it through uh, 
uh, made it through chapter 5, and I think I preached one time in chapter 6, and this last week I found the sermon I was supposed to preach on the 15th of March, but we never came on the 15th of March, right? It, 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 was, it was shut down, so I never preached that sermon. So I'm going to preach the second sermon, which really not part two, as it says on the top, but it's part two in, in the sense that we're going back to this thing again, right? Uh, and, and we're going to start picking it up. Um, so uh, I just want you to know how, how we got here. And, and again, if you can follow all that, good for you, right? All, all I have to say is that here in the evenings, we're going to start going through chapters six, seven, and eight, right? Chapter six, seven, and eight of the book of Romans. And it's a wonderful portion of scripture. I tell you, it's a wonderful portion of scripture. I just, my heart has been encouraged just kind of reading through and studying it the last uh, few days. And the Lord willing, when we're done with that, we're going to jump, uh, after we get through 6, 7, and 8, we're going to jump to chapter 12, because we already did 1 through 5, and we already did 9, 10, and 11. So again, it's probably one of the most unique studies in the book of Romans you've ever been a part of, and who knows what could happen next, and if we'll make it through 6, 7, and 8. But I'm hoping we're going to do that, right? Now, obviously, it's been a long time since we've been in the book of Romans, uh, so flow is not something I'm very good at in uh, general. And flows something we don't even have a concept of here in this book. So let me just give you, because it's been so long since we've been a part of it, let me just give you the briefest outline, uh, and, and it's going to be brief. Uh, the briefest over, overview of the previous chapters, uh, after some introductory comments in chapter 1, verses uh, 1 verse through 17, and using Romans, I saw this the other day, I thought, man, this is perfect. Using Romans as an acronym, right, just R-O-M-A-N-S, right, as an acronym, uh, the first one is ruin, right? Uh, chapter 117 to 320 is the utter sinfulness of humanity, the, the ruinness, right? Uh, the ruin of man. Then the, then the offer, which is 321 to 331, right? God's offer of justification by grace. The model is in Romans 4. That would be Abraham. David's in there also, but the model for a saving faith. Access, Romans 5, with the benefits of justification, then the new Adam, which is Romans 5, 12 through 21. Again, we're children of two Adams. And then the struggle, uh, struggle with sin, struggle uh, with sin and then the sanctification and our victory in Christ. So there you go. Romans acronym, ruin, offer, model, access, new Adam and struggle. So we're about to start with the struggle, the struggle with sin. God's power over sin in our life and the sanctifying process. Now, again, this is going to be a wonderful study. I just think it's wonderful. But you're going to have to kind of uh, pay a little bit of attention, and you're going to have to work a little bit to keep up with me. A lot of material, and you're going to have to think about it. If you don't get it the first time, that's okay. Go back and listen to it again until you get it, because you want to get this portion of Scripture. It's vital in your Christian life. I, I've told many of you before, one of the greatest compliments I ever got from anybody in this congregation was an older gentleman who told me one time, I understand you by Thursday. And I, I greatly appreciate that comment. Because what that tells me is he's gone back and listened several times until he gets it. Because he wants to get it. Trust me, you want to get this portion of scripture. You want to understand this. It's one of the greatest uh, uh, sections of scripture anywhere in the Bible, most certainly in this book. Um, chapter 6 is one of those chapters that's probably frequently misunderstood and misinterpreted. So I think we're going to have a great time exploring the text, clarifying truth, trying to understand what God says in this section. Now, as we come to chapter 6, I got to remind us of the fact that chapter divisions and verses are not inspired, 
right? They're not divinely inspired. The chapter divisions and numbering system was added by men somewhere around the 16th century for the convenience of the reader, right? We have books. We don't have scrolls. We're not trying to roll things out. We're just trying to find things. So chapter divisions, verses came in a while back. So when Paul wrote the letter, what you have to understand for him and his thinking, it's one continuous letter, one continuous thought, right? And so while we come to uh, one of the chapter divisions, we come to what we call chapter 6 for the apostle, it was nothing more than just him continuing the argument that he was already working out in chapter 5. So it's not really a new section per se, it's a continuation of the argument that he's been working out previously. In fact, you can see that in chapter 6, verse 1, the very first uh, sentence, or very first statement. What shall we say then? Well, the question is, what shall we say then to what? Right? So it, it, it's not a new section, it's a continuation. It's, it's a continuation of everything that he's been saying up to this point. Because he's not finished with what he's been saying up to this point, and he's going to go on with it. So he's going to say something that arises directly and obviously from what he's already been talking about. So when we come to the, uh, what comes next here is again a, a direct immediate connection with what he said previously in chapter 5. And the whole point of chapter 5, the whole theme of chapter 5 is the assurance or the certainty of our salvation. The assurance and the certainty of our salvation. I mean, Paul had spent a first, uh, the first four chapters, a tremendous amount of time working out the great uh, doctrine of justification by faith alone. And he did it by beginning to show us the transgression of mankind, right? Chapter 118, chapter 320. He, he, he showed us in detail just how sinful we are, how ruined, as I just said in that acronym we are, how sinful mankind is, how guilty mankind is, how hopeless mankind is, how helpless mankind is, how doomed we all are, apart from the supernatural intervention of God. And, and starting in chapter 321 through chapter 4, he begins to expand and explain and defend the doctrine of justification by faith alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, through the person of Jesus Christ alone. And, and he begins to show us what God has done in and through the person of Christ in response to mankind's dire need. He shows us how God has reached down to unworthy mankind and offered him a full pardon through the substitutionary uh, propitiatory a sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what God is offering to mankind. A full pardon. A full pardon from their guilt and of sin. Now let me just clarify this before we go on, because I think it's important. It's been a long time since we talked about the doctrine of justification. Let me just clarify, so we're all on the same page, what justification means. Right? What does justification mean, or to justify? Uh, it, it's, a, it's a legal term. It means to declare righteous. Now, justification is the transaction in which the righteousness of Christ is credited to the sinner's account. Theologians would call it imputation. It's been imputed. All of our sin is placed upon or imputed upon Christ or to Christ, and all of our righteous, all of his righteousness is imputed or credited to us when we believe. Very uh, familiar portion of Scripture. Uh, Romans 3.23, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, listen, Romans 3.24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom he displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Every man stands before God in fear, right? Every man falls short of God's perfect standard. Weighed in the balance, every one of us is found wanting. Against God's absolute purity, we are woefully short. But God's righteousness is given to men provided for men for all who would believe in Jesus Christ. It's a righteousness that God gives to men freely as a gift through grace. Again, uh, Romans 3.24, being justified as a gift by his grace. Being justified, the, the, the word means to render righteous. 
It's a passive verb, a passive tense verb, which means that we are passive in obtaining this righteousness. We don't do it ourselves. We don't do it ourselves. We can't do it ourselves. Again, justification is somebody else's activity. It's somebody else, uh, somebody else who's the justifier. We're just the ones being justified. So again, justification is the forensic or legal declaration of God. It's very much of the courtroom scene. God, who is he? He's the judge of the universe. He's making a legal declaration, and he declares the guilty sinner righteous, not on the basis of anything they've done, but on the basis of the righteousness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and him securing us that righteousness. God declares the sinner righteous solely on the basis of the merit of Christ, period. Solely on the basis of the merit of Christ. So justification changes the judicial standing of a sinner before God from not guilty, and not only that of not guilty, but now positively righteous. It's not only that we're not guilty, but we're now absolutely positively righteous because we've been given the righteous of the perfect one, right? We're absolutely positively righteous in Christ. And once God makes that declaration, once the gavel comes down from the bench of the universe, the, uh, uh, the God of the, the judge of the universe, once he makes that declaration, it's immediate and it's irrevocable. It's immediate and it's irrevocable, meaning that it lasts throughout eternity. The moment a person places their faith in Christ, listen, he or she cannot be lost. Okay, I don't know what kind of background some of you came out of, but a lot of you come out of backgrounds where you're working for your salvation. You're trying to earn your salvation. I shared the gospel with a young man the other day who wanted to know what I knew about the world religions. I said, well, I can tell you some things about it, but I'll tell you the, most thing, the thing that's most important about all the world religions is everybody's trying to work their way to heaven. Everyone's trying to get right with God by something they do. And biblical Christianity says you can't do that. Only God can grant or impute to us perfect righteousness that we need through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And because it's something that God does for us, it, it can't be lost because it's the activity of God. The immediate, irrevocable declaration of God, the moment a person places their faith in Christ, right? Justification cannot be reversed. The gavel comes down, the verdict, the case is over, right? The, the, the verdict rendered not guilty and absolutely positively righteous, right? So God's, per, uh, God's declaration stands forever. It's permanent. It's uh, recorded down, if you want, uh, in the Supreme uh, and the records of the Supreme Court of the universe, right, in, in heaven. No person, no court ever is going to come along and overrule that, o- overrule God's declaration. You're not going to undo that declaration. God has declared it because of his son, not because of our effort, but because of Christ, Christ's effort, Christ's work. Now, in chapter 5, the apostle starts to work out the results of justification by faith, and I want you to go back there and look. Right, so turn back to chapter 5. have got to get around and start at chapter 6. I tell you what, words mean something, don't they? Listen to these words. If you're having a bad day up to this point, five one's going to help you out. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? There's a certain sense where we should all get up right now and yell hallelujah. Right? Praise God. I don't care how bad your day's going, you have peace with God if you believe, right? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through whom he also, or we have also uh, obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. We exult in hope and the glory of God, and not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, uh, and, and etc. and so forth, right? Our justification guarantees our final redemption. Our justification uh, uh, um, causes us, if we are justified by faith through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, should cause us to be happy. 
right? We should be happy people, right? Uh, and happy with about our standing before God, happy concerning our ultimate uh, destination, our ultimate salvation, in spite of whatever occurs in life, right? Because the promise of the Bible is if God justifies you, he's going to glorify you, right? If God justifies you, he's going to glorify you. Romans 8 and 30, therefore, or, or these whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified, right? If you are a believer in Christ, your eternal destiny is secure. Peace with God in time. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's just tremendous truth. And we know because of what God has done to the person of Christ and what Christ has won for us, we know one day we will stand in glory. One day we'll be glorified. Right? We know that nothing will ever come between us and God. Nothing will ever come between us and our ultimate guaranteed end. That's, the, again, the security of our salvation. Verse 6. For if a while we're still helpless at the right time, Christ for the, died for the ungodly. Verse 8. God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Verse 10, for if we are we are enemies, we are reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Again, if God gives his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in our place, and he comes and he dies for us, while we are enemies, and God of the universe, the judge of the universe, declares us, reconciled and justified by the activity of his son, then we can know for absolute certainty that our redemption is secure. Right? That's what Paul wants Christians to know out of chapter 5. That's what he wants us to know in chapter 5. That nothing can come between us and our guaranteed ultimate glory. For if God before us, who can be against us? That's the theme. If God gave his own son, what can separate us from that love? You know that out of out of, uh, out of Romans 8, right? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. I mean, the answer is absolutely nothing. Neither death nor life or angels or principalities, things present, things past, powers, heights, depths, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the absolute security of our salvation. That is the absolute security of our salvation and the assurance of our salvation because of the person of Christ. Nothing is going to interrupt. Nothing is going to defeat God's great plan for us in Christ. Now then the apostle turns his attention in verses 12 to 21 to show us us who are justified, us who are justified by faith. He wants us to know of our union with Christ, our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. When we were born in this world, we were born with Adam, or born into Adam, right? We were, we're united, united with Adam. And being united with Adam means that we're condemned. We're under wrath. We're, under, we're guilty of uh, alongside of Adam. Adam sinned, and therefore all in Adam died. They pay that penalty which is uh, for sin, which is death. Verse 12, chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, justice through one man, sin entered into the world. Death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. Right? I mean, people who, people who have a hard time with, I'm not a sinner, it's like, all you got to do, my friends, is look around and see death. Death is in the world. Death is in the world because sin is in the world. And the fact that you're going to die means you're guilty. If you don't understand that, I would encourage you to probably try to figure that one out because the Bible tells us about that, right? For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is the type of him who was to come. Everybody's guilty in Adam. And again, death being proof of that guilt of sin. But the point here is not Adam's sin. The point really here in this section is Christ. And, and the apostle is saying, oh, I'm begging you to look at Christ. That's really what he's saying. I, I beg you to look at Christ. That's what the, the apostle is pleading. He, he wants everyone to look at the most wonderful person who's ever lived. 
He wants people to look at the most wonderful person who's ever lived and see what he has done on man's behalf, to see what Christ has done for man's benefit. And the point that he repeats over and over again is it's so much more, so much more, what God has done through Christ, what Christ has done for man, and man's, for man's good is so much more than what Adam did in the destruction of mankind. Verse 15, the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God by the gift and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Right? The greatness of Christ, the so much more of Christ. For by the transgression of one, death reigned through the one. Much more, those who receive the abundance of the grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted in justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one man many will be made righteous. Right? Justification breaks our relationship with Adam and brings us now into full union with Christ. What did Adam do for us? Well, he brought sin, death, and judgment condemnation right thank you very much he brought death sin judgment condemnation christ what does he do he brings pardon he brings life he brings the gift of righteousness right forgiveness justification adam brings in the reign of death and christ brings in not only the reign of life but he brings in the reign of grace the reign of life and the reign of grace and again the point is this back and forth uh, uh, that Paul is putting here in Romans 5 is that what one man does, or what one man did, affected countless others who came after him. If you want to know more, you can go back and listen to those, those sermons at your, at your leisure. Right? There was a time before we came to Christ, before we were justified, when we were united in Adam. And the result was we suffered the consequences of his sin. We shared in his guilt. But now the point is he's trying to make is that we are joined to the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore our salvation is certain. Right? Eternal glory for the believer is a reality. Because all that Christ is and all that Christ has becomes ours in our union with him. I'm going to say it again. All that Christ is and all that Christ has becomes ours in our union with him. Right? Even as everything that belonged to Adam once belonged to us, now in Christ we have a complete exchange. Now that's a theological point, a key theological point. Our union with Christ. I don't know if we think about that a lot. Think about I'm saved. No, but we're united with Christ. That's a tremendous truth. Before we were saved, we were united with Adam. We were in Adam. His fall became our fall. His condemnation became our condemnation. But now once we're justified, legally declared not guilty and positively righteous, forgiven in Christ, we're united to Christ, and all things that belong to Christ now belong to us. Everything that happened to Christ happens to us. Again, there's a certain sense when we ought to shout hallelujah, right? Praise God. It's a tremendous truth. Again, the Bible says, by the transgression of one, many, right? By the transgression of one man, Adam, many died. And death reigned through that one man's actions, Adam's sin. And the result was condemnation to all men. The many were made sinners, verse 19, right? They were made sinners. What does that mean? They were constituted, <coughs> excuse me, considered sinners, treated as such, right? They received that due penalty which is uh, uh, for sin, which is death. But the Bible says that in Christ, by the obedience of the one, that being the person of Christ, the grace of God and the gift of God abounded to the many. 
justification came, the gift of righteousness, the, the reign of life, through the obedience of the one man, through the obedience of one man, the person of Jesus Christ, he will make the many righteous. That's again, uh, the many will be made righteous. Again, that's verse 19. So again, in Christ, we have all the benefits of salvation. In Christ, we, have the, we, we live under the reign of grace. We're under the power, the influence, the control of grace. And again, all of these blessings in Christ are reaped or harvested, if you will, from the wonderful fact of justification by faith alone. Again, we used to be joined to Adam. Now we're joined to Christ. We're, we are in Christ. And because we're in Christ, all that belongs to Christ now belongs to us. We're no, we're no longer under the reign of sin. We're un, no longer under the reign of death. We're under the reign, the reign of grace and the reign of life because we've been declared not guilty and positively righteous. Now, at the end of chapter 5, the apostle makes a tremendous statement about the law and about grace, verse 20. He says, The law came in that transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Verse 21, That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Paul's not through with the the theme of assurance, right, that he started here in uh, chapter 5. Because of the reality of the finality of justification, he's going to pick that theme up at the top of chapter eight, right? The top of chapter eight, and he's going to conclude it at the end of chapter eight. But for the moment, after he makes these statements in verse twenty and twenty-one, he's going to stop. And and chapter six, seven, and eight really are going to be almost like a parenthetical thought, and he's going to begin to deal with two issues that come up based on what he has just said at the end of chapter five. Uh, again, verse 20, the law came that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So as soon as the Apostle Paul makes that statement, it raises two problems that he's got to address, two problems that need to be dealt with, or two possible objections that arise in concern or connected with, with the statement he's just made about the law and about grace. Objection number one is this. Paul, basically, Paul, when you're teaching about grace and a proper understanding of the purpose of the law, won't that cause people to sin even more than they did before? Since I'm on my way to glory because I'm justified in Christ, then Paul doesn't really matter how I live here on the earth. If I'm guaranteed a spot in heaven because of my relationship to Christ and the fact that the law doesn't save me, then it doesn't matter if I continue in my sinful lifestyle because God loves me anyway. Isn't that correct, Paul? That's where chapter 6, verse 1 comes in. And verse 2. To that kind of line of thinking, he says, chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? In verse 2, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So again, chapter 6 is not so much of a division. He's not starting a new section like some people teach. It really is a continuation of the argument from chapter 5. It's an explanation of a proper understanding of grace working itself out in the life of a believer. So chapter 6 is really the practical outworking or the practical living out of here on the earth uh, by someone who is indeed justified by faith, by, by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, the person of Christ alone. What does that life look like? That's what chapter 6 is about. And again, chapter 6 is one of the greatest portions of this of the text of the Bible, one of the greatest portions of chapter of the book of Romans, but the entire scripture, because it's freeing, it's liberating, it's Christ-centered. Someone raises the question, Paul, if sin abounds, if where sin abounds, grace superabounds, shouldn't I sin more? 
right? If I, if I sent more, Paul, can I get to know even more the grace of God? Then the apostle proclaims in verse 2, may it never be, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Right, so what Paul is teaching here, beginning to address, is a false teaching which is known as antinomianism. Antinomianism. Anti means against, nomos, law, or lawlessness. And I'll give you a theological definition of antinomianism. Antinomianism, antinomianism is the belief that there are no moral laws of uh, there are no moral laws God expects Christians to obey. Antinomianism takes a biblical teaching to an unbiblical conclusion. The biblical teaching is that Christians are not required to observe the Old Testament law as a means of salvation. When Christ died on the cross, he fulfilled the Old Testament law. The unbiblical conclusion is that there are no moral laws of God, uh, no moral law that God expects a Christian to obey. Right? So if I'm not saved by my works, I can just do anything I want. Right? God doesn't have any laws. Laws in the Old Testament has nothing to do with me, so I can just do anything I want. That's basically the idea. Right? So Paul knew that the teaching of the gospel, listen, the true gospel, would produce these kind of arguments. He knew that ungodly and unprincipled men would develop false deductions that are not true from what he's saying. So he wants to confront these kind of errors head on. So again, antinomian says, in effect, if more sin generates more grace, then I'm going to sin like mad so God, I can receive all the grace I can get right from God and God can get all the glory for giving me grace. right? And Paul says to that kind of thinking, may it never be. Now, the second question that arises from the statement about the law in, uh, in uh, verse 20 and 21 has to do with the law's value and purpose. Right? The question is, then, why did God ever give the law to the children of Israel, and what is the law meant to do? And the apostle is going to take up that argument or that discussion in chapter 7, more fully in chapter 7. And he's going to give in chapter 7 an exposition, an explanation of the law of God and God's plan of redemption. So Paul does this because the legalists of the day are having a hard time with his teaching because he's teaching the gospel of grace. And they believe, uh, the legalists of the day believe that men, again, they have to earn their favor with God. They've got to do these things, good works, right? Follow uh, the details of the law down to the minutest, de- minutest uh, points. And, and of course, the legalists would have come to Paul who's teaching the gospel of grace that it doesn't really matter what you do. It matters what God does. They would have charged him with being against the law and with him with antinomianism. Because they would have said, look, your grace gives far too much liberty. Your teaching gives far too much liberty with people. Uh, assuming that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, it's going to lead people to go mad with sin. In fact, back in chapter 3, Paul had already been accused of uh, antinomianism. He says uh, in chapter Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 8, And why not say, as we are slanderously ported, as some claim, to say, let us do evil that good may come. So again, people don't really understand that. Right? People don't understand the, the, the gospel. Now, I'm going to say this, which sounds kind of a strange uh, statement, but it's true. The man who preaches the true gospel of salvation by grace alone is the one who could be possibly charged with antinomianism. Right? Do whatever you want to do. Right? You can be falsely charged with that if you preach the gospel of grace. And there's no better way to understand or to evaluate a guy's teaching of the gospel than someone might misinterpret what he is saying. For again, the gospel, the true gospel of grace, says it is absolutely not about you. The gospel of grace says it's all about Jesus Christ, what he's done. And the gospel of grace ultimately says it doesn't really matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you do or what you don't do. The doctrine of justification by faith alone says it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're good. It doesn't matter if you're bad. Because listen, Abraham certainly wasn't a good person. That's some character flaws. 
about our friend David? Man after God's own heart with a few character flaws. What about Saul of Tarsus? A religious guy with quite a few character flaws, right? The gospel of grace says all of your righteous deeds are like filthy rags before a holy God. Therefore, it does not matter what you do or what you do not do. Don't like that. People don't like that. You're just saying, do no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's what the gospel teaches. The gospel teaches it has nothing to do with you and has everything to do with Christ. Abraham was an idolater. And even after he knew God, he committed adultery with his handmaid. David, again, a man after God's own heart, yet he was also an adulterer and a murderer. Saul of Tarsus was a blasphemer. He forced others to blaspheme. He persecuted the church, put some into prison, and even killed others. Yet each of these men were saved. Each of these men were justified, not by their own efforts, but by believing in him who justifies the ungodly. Their faith was credited to them as righteousness. That's Romans 4, 6. So a true presentation of the gospel comes with no demands to live a good life. In fact, a true presentation of the gospel says there's no value in your works for right standing before God. For your justification or your right standing before God comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and the person of Jesus Christ alone. So a a proclamation of the true gospel says forget you, forget your works, forget your effort, and only look to Christ. That's the gospel, and sometimes that message is misunderstood. On the other hand, a man who teaches salvation by works, he's never misunderstood. Because a person who teaches salvation by works, he says, well, if you want to go to heaven, do this. If you want to go to heaven, refrain from doing this other thing. And keep on doing this or keep on refraining in order to make yourself right and keep yourself right before God. Again, every religious system in the world teaches that model, and a lot of pseudo-Christian groups teach that model and a lot of untaught christians teach that model right again we've given you the analogy before you go to bed at the end of the day and you have a hard day you've said things you shouldn't have said and you thought things you shouldn't have thought and you kicked the dog and weren't nice to your kids and you decide should i pray because i always pray before i go to bed and you go well i can't pray tonight before because i've not done very well today you my friend have just fallen into that trap of not understanding the gospel Because at the end of the day, it's not about you. At the end of the day, it's always about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And your ability to come into God's presence is not based on your effort. It's based on the merit of Christ and him alone. That's a true understanding of the gospel. A person who's teaching the law says, you better do this and do this and don't do that thing and these five other things, and and then you'll be good to go. Well, I I never teach you that. You may have noticed at the end of a sermon, I hardly ever give you anything to do because I'm not the Holy Spirit in your life. You know, go to the Roman Catholic Church, they'll give you some beads, they'll give you some candles, they'll give you some, some prayers to say, and you'll be good to go if you just say those things enough times. Repeat, and I, I don't tell you that. It's got to the Holy Spirit, it's got to convict you of whatever the Word has said to your heart. Right? It, it doesn't work that way, doing and not doing. Doing and not doing is the law. By grace alone, through faith alone, that's the gospel. Right? The guy who teaches the law, he's never misunderstood. And his message is always the same, sin and die. Right? Do good deeds and live. Save yourself. Right? But again, that's completely opposite from the, law, the, the, from the gospel. Right? The man who says God justifies the ungodly, that person is a dangerous person. Because the legalists want rules to govern our activities. 
and the libertines or the antinomians, right? They want license to sin. The legalists want to put demands upon you, and the antinomians, the people who are against any kind of rules, they just want to do what they want to do. They want to sin. But the true gospel and the true gospel preacher is a dangerous man because his message is often misunderstood. So Paul is obliged to make the statements, to make clarification to what he is teaching here in this portion of the text. Again, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Right? So Paul's not following either extremes uh, of legalism or libertinism. Uh, for to abandon a, a correct view of grace to accommodate the legalists or to restrict the libertines is an abandonment of the gospel of grace. So while the believer is not in bondage to the law, he's certainly not free to disregard the spirit behind the law, which again, the law is given in a desire to be obedient to God and to honor God, right? Uh, That's why Paul, once he laid down the facts of uh, justification or how one is saved, he now has to turn his attention to what does it look like to live as a saved person? What does it look like to live as a justified individual once you're saved? And Paul is going to say, look, basically, if you really are saved, there's no need for these external rules. There's no need for these kind of external controls over people who are truly saved, truly justified, truly redeemed. Because, and here's the big because, maybe you've already gone there, right? Because the person who's truly justified happens to be controlled and indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit. That's the difference. That's the difference, right? There's an internal motivation, an eternal transformation that causes one to live correctly, live godly, and live a holy life. So again, one of the main components is often misunderstood or missing in this understanding of justification is that the true understanding of the fact that God imputes to the believer righteousness of Christ in justification isn't just an act. It's not just an act where God declares this, that the sinner is now righteous in Christ, giving to him the righteousness of Christ. It's not just that. It includes transformation, transformation of life, right? So when we talk about justification, it is a legal term, but part of that understanding of justification is we need to understand the topic of regeneration, conversion, transformation. Second Corinthians 5.17, you're familiar with it. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is what? New, right? A new creature, a new creature, new creation. A justified man, based on the merit of Christ, a justified man is not only declared righteous, he is made righteous. He's made righteous. He's a new creature. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass. Behold, new things have come. Because genuine salvation involves transformation. So if, if you wanted to look at your life and understand true, the true spiritual condition of where you're at, uh, are you saved or not saved? You, you don't look back to some moment. You used to tell us a long time ago, you just go, I can't remember when I was saved, so you go out and put a, put a drive a poster into the ground out in the front, and you say, it's on this day. It's not about you. It's not about the day. 19 so-and-so or whatever. If you want to know if you're saved or not, you don't look back to a certain date and time where you prayed a prayer, signed a card, or walked forward. You don't go to the point where God, somebody told you that God saved you through Christ. If you want to know if you're a Christian or not, you look at your life presently. You look at your life presently. 
you see if there's any evidence of transformation. We're going through the new members class. And one of the things we ask in the new members class is, give me your testimony. That's great. But I really want to know is I want to know if there's any signs of life in you. Can you tell me how Christ in you has made you different? Because if you are saved, then I say you are united with Christ. And if Christ is in you, you're different. Because as an unbeliever, you weren't, the Holy Spirit wasn't there, but now the Holy Spirit is there, right? So if you want to know you're a Christian or not, you look at your life presently. Don't look at the back, the past. Look presently and see if there's any evidence of transformation. So it's theologically correct to say that when we confess our sin and place our belief in Christ, we come to God in repentance, we receive God's mercy, that salvation, again, is by grace alone, through faith alone, uh, in the person of Jesus Christ, declared just completely by Christ's merit, completely forgiven in Christ. But salvation, again, is more than just a forensic declaration. Remember what James said in his book. He said, faith apart from works is what? Dead. There ought to be some evidence. There ought to be some evidence. There ought to be a transformation of life. Because, again, salvation is not just a declaration. It's a transformation. Once you're justified, you're a new creation. Once you're justified, you're no longer who you used to be. And that's a tremendous uh, uh, principle in Christianity, right? It's it's at the, the heart of Christianity. One of the core Christian beliefs, one of the core principles of Christian living is that we manifest that transformation. When that transformation of life is not present, then there's no what? True justification. Right? There's no true justification. Justification is something that God does by way of declaration, but transformation is something that you experience. And again, if the experience of transformation is not present then the reality of justification is not present. So chapters 6, 7, and 8 really are almost like a parenthetical thought dealing with these issues of absolute uh, uh, legalism or absolute antinomianism. Do whatever you want or do these rules, right? He's trying to elaborate the doctrine of our union with Christ that, again, he introduced back in chapter 5. And he's trying to help us understand the practical aspects of justification in Christ, by faith alone in Christ. What does it look like? What are the experimental, the old uh, guys used to say, what does that experimentally look like in your life? Right? How, how does it work its way out now in the world? Because I used to say this all the time when I taught the book of Romans a long time ago, salvation looks like something. Salvation looks like something. It's a life of holiness. It's a life of righteousness. That God not only demands, but that God provides in Christ. I did not say perfection. Okay, but it is a life of holiness. It's a life of righteousness. We've been given, declared legally not guilty, given the righteousness of Christ. Not only is it a declaration, it's a transformation. It is progressive. Sanctification is progressive. Justification happens at once. Right from the bench of the universe, declaration not guilty, positively righteous. Sanctification is that process in time. When you first came to Christ, I'll go back it up a moment. Before you came to Christ, you sinned and you didn't care about it. Somehow God in his kindness shared Christ with you and you understood, you saw light, as someone mentioned this afternoon, and uh, that light changed your life. Now all of a sudden you sin, and that sin what? Bothers you. I used to do this all the time before I got saved. Now somehow it bothers me. Why does it bother me? Because that's the person of the Holy Spirit convicting you of that sin. Because justification, not only legal, it is a process of being conformed more and more into the likeness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's sanctification. And Paul's going to show that holiness is as much a gift to God or a gift of God to the believer as salvation is in its redemptive act. One 
commentator says this, when someone is redeemed, that is not merely a divine transaction, but a miracle of transformation. This is great. He says, redemption is not merely a legal reality, but a reality period. Redemption is not merely a legal reality, but a reality period. God not only says it's true, but God also begins to make it true. God declares us righteous and begins to create Christ's righteousness in us. He goes on and says it's vital for the church today to understand the connection between justification and sanctification because if you're not living a holy life, you're not truly saved. He says, I'm convinced that for the most part, the American church is an unredeemed church because there's so much, uh, there's such a lack of any practical holiness there. The life of God must be present in the one who claims to know Christ. That's a tremendous statement. A lack of practical holiness does indeed mark most of the American church. Therefore, not only are they an unredeemed church, but the fact is straight out they're unsaved church, right? They're, they're just unsaved. Because whenever you have a group of people who lack practical holiness and they call themselves a church, you've got error. Right? When you have a group of people who lack practical holiness, they call themselves a church, you've got the error, the error of license or libertinism or antinomianism. And when you have a group of people who are under the bondage of the law, right, do this, do this, don't do this, all these things, all those heavy demands of the law, you've got error. That's legalism. Those are the two extremes. Both are error. Both are a misunderstanding of the doctrine of justification. Both are a misunderstanding of the doctrine of sanctification. Both are a misunderstanding, basically, of the gospel and the gospel of grace. Right? So that's all kind of introduction just to get us into the flow of the text. Right? So here we go. Verse 1. You guys Okay. Take a big breath, because we're going to go down here. You'll be all right. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Right? What shall we say then? Right? What shall we say then about the doctrine of the gracious acceptance of the sinner without any work of the law by faith in the righteousness of Christ? That's really the question. And considering all that has been said, and considering the last two verses out of chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, about the law being added, about superabounding grace, he says, are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? The word continue means to abide or to remain or to stay. A habitual persistence. Or living in a place, making it your permanent residence. Now, Paul's not talking about uh, a believer's occasional falling into sin. Because we still have the flesh, we have the imperfect flesh, we still have the weakness of our flesh, fall into sin occasionally. What he's talking about is, are we to continue in sin that may, may grace increase? What he's talking about is willful, intentional sinning. Willful, intentional sinning as a pattern of one's life. Now again, before salvation, all we could do is sin. All we could do is sin. Sin was our established way of living. Sin was our home. Sin is where we dwelt. That was our way of life. That's where we lived. But as those who are justified, given new life in Christ and dwelt by God's Spirit, there's no way possible or no way or excuse for us to continue habitually living in sin. Once saved, how can we possibly have the same relationship with sin that we had before salvation? That's really the question. But once you're saved, how can you possibly have the same relationship to sin that you had before salvation? Are we to remain in sin or to abide in sin so that grace may increase? Right? That's the question. Now, we in the context of the justified ones. 
He's asking, are we the justified ones, the ones saved by grace alone, are we to remain in or to live in or to sustain that same relationship with sin that we had before we were saved? Shall we abide in sin that grace may increase? And the apostle's answer is, may it never be. Right? May it never be, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? May, may it never be is may genoito in, in the Greek, and it's the strongest form of negation in the Greek. It's not just no, and it's not just absolutely no, or certainly no. It's like no, 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 never, never, it's impossible, God forbid, right? Some of your translations may even say that. So we who died to sin still live in it, may it never be, right? How can we who died to sin still live in sin? Now, I don't know in the context, if, does that make sense? I don't know if Paul is, is uh, talking to someone here or just addressing a, a, a specific person, individual, or maybe just a hypothetical question, trying to anticipate a, a question that would come his direction. But either way, if a person were to ask that kind of question, are we to continue in sin that grace may increase, it certainly shows a complete lack of understanding and the meaning of the purpose of grace. Again, back in chapter 5, verse 20. The law came in that transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That is in, that in sin, verse 21, as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's the purpose of grace? Right? Is the purpose of grace to allow us to sin more? Is the purpose of grace to allow us to continue in a pattern, a habitual pattern of sinfulness in our life? And the answer is absolutely not. Grace, superabounding grace, God's kindness, right, is to deliver us from the bondage of sin. Didn't I say there's freedom and liberty in this passage, in this portion of Scripture? Right, he wants to free us in Christ from the bondage of sin and from the reign of death. He wants to take us from under the bondage of sin, the reign of death, and place us under the reign of grace and the reign of eternal life. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? The person who claims to be justified, the person who claims to have a saving faith in Christ, cannot continue to remain in a state of habitual, constant sin. It's impossible. It's impossible. It's impermissible. The very suggestion is outrageous. Not only is it outrageous, it's disgusting, inconceivable. A man who is justified who is under the reign of grace can't be like that. He can't think like that. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, it's a modern question of our time, the question that many people who call themselves Christians today have a hard time answering. Uh, can a person really be saved and then live like and look like the world around them? Can a person truly be saved and yet continue in habitual patterns of sinfulness? Can the divine transaction of justification have no practical impact upon that person's life or in that person's life. And there are many people who would answer yes to that question. Many people who would call themselves Christians who say something to the effect of, Jesus is my Savior, but he's not my Lord. You've heard people speak that. Well, therefore, I know I'm saved. Jesus is my Savior. He's not my Lord. I know I'm saved because I have, quote-unquote, accepted Jesus. And I don't really obey him, but that's okay, because if I did, then that would be works. Therefore, I can still live my life any way I want because I know I'm saved because on a certain day back in 19 so-and-so, I made a profession of faith. I accepted Christ as my Savior. And someday, maybe I'll even make him my Lord, end quote, right? People talk like that. You've heard that. I've heard that. 
in my shame, to my shame, when I was a very young believer, I said those almost those exact words. Not understanding the link between justification, the link and the tie between justification and sanctification. These kind of people who teach this kind of error believe that if you ever ask Christ to come into your life, then regardless of how you've lived your life afterwards, you're saved and you're certain to go to hell, or certain to go to heaven, or certain to go to hell. But they're certain to go to heaven, <laughs> right? People who teach or believe that if you've ever asked Christ into your life, then regardless of how you live your life afterwards, are saved and are sure to go to heaven. Who am I looking on in that kind of a scenario? I'm looking on myself, what I've done, right? Again, on a certain date, it's 19 so-and-so, right? But the reality is that kind of statement is that people are lost. They're deceived. They don't understand the doctrine of justification. They don't understand the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Because, again, that the declaration of Christ's righteousness imputed to the believer, it's not just words. We're not just given the righteousness of Christ in some legal fashion only. We are in the process of being made righteous. Given the righteousness of Christ, being made like the righteousness or in the righteousness of Christ. Because justification, again, is more than just a declaration. Listen, it's transformation. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed, behold, new things have come. Right? Complete transformation of life. John chapter 3. Nicodemus, the religious guy. Jesus says, look, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom. You've got to get new life in you. It's not just about who you are and what you do and all these religious things. You've got to get new life in you. In fact, it's not just born, born again. It's born from above. Right? And it's not that these people that I've just said are lost who believe this scenario that you can accept Jesus and live your life anyway. It's not just my opinion. I try not to give my opinion too much. I know I probably do more than I should. Uh, but it's not just me. This connection between justification and transformation. You know what? It happens to be that God says that very same thing. Right? Put a mark there in your Bible and turn to uh, uh, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter six verse nine. Watch the words. First Corinthians six verse nine. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. I could stop right there, and we could preach a sermon on all the nonsense that's coming into the church, where people can be gay Christians and all that kind of stuff, right? I, I don't write this stuff. I just read it. Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God himself says, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, nor homosexuals, verse 10, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, note the words, And such were some of you. Such were, past tense, some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Listen, justification brings transformation. Justification brings transformation. Ephesians 5, don't turn there, but 
Uh, Ephesians 5, 5. For this you know certainly that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, we live in a time in the church where many people say you can be saved and show absolutely no fruit whatsoever in your life. You can be saved because you accepted Jesus and you can have no practical righteousness, no practical holiness. In fact, they even go further and some people have gotten, I was going to say in my dish, but probably not, I shouldn't say it that way. Some people have gotten pretty angry with me because they say you can be a carnal Christian. Quote, unquote. What's a carnal Christian? Well, it's just a guy who lives by the flesh, right? He lives according to the flesh, under the power of the flesh. You're a Christian because you, quote, unquote, accepted Jesus. And again, if you can remember the date, that's all the better. And if you can point to your baptism, that's, that's great too, right? If you can tell me when the day you walked in, I'll sign a prayer card, whatever, said, said a prayer. It's good. As long as you've done those things, then it does not matter how you have lived or how you're living currently. I try to push this point home, and people get really upset with what I'm about to say next. So you're telling me it's okay to be a Christian alcoholic or a Christian drug addict or a Christian prostitute as long as you've accepted, quote-unquote, Jesus, right? That's what you're saying. That's what these kind of people are saying. The Bible says contrary to what men say. Paul says, are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Right? So we don't really care what men say. We want to understand what God says. And God says it's impossible if you're genuinely saved, genuinely justified, to continue in a habitual pattern of sin again once you're justified. Because it's not just a forensic declaration. It's also a transformation of life because the Christian actually, listen, the Christian actually looks like Christ. Christ in you is the difference. Right? People say, well, I believe. Well, I always take them to the book of James. Well, you know what? The devils believe. I always ask people, well, if you believe, have you ever shook? And they think I'm crazy. Well, it says that the demons believe and they shudder. They have enough common sense to understand they're in a whole lot of problems uh, before a holy God. The demons in their belief, do they look like Christ? I mean, this is not really difficult theological stuff, right? Do they look? No, they don't look like Christ. So there's a difference between belief and belief. There's a difference between accepting Jesus and being transformed by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone and being justified because in justification is a transformation. There's a newness of life, a new character. Again, verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor the drunkard, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Right? That's tremendous truth. One of the greatest theologians of the past, a guy named Charles Hodge, said this, and he said it rightly. He said, holiness starts where justification finishes. Holiness starts where justification finishes. If holiness does not start, we have no right to suspect justification has ever started. That's a pithy statement, right? Holiness starts where justification finishes. If holiness does not start, we have no right to suspect that justification has ever started. Now go back to the book of Romans, right? So what does Paul mean when he says, how shall we, right, we the justified ones in the context, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Well, the key to understanding is uh, that verse, I think, is found in that phrase, died to sin. 
What does it mean to have died to sin? And I really think died to sin is probably the best translation of the phrase. The authorized version, King James, renders it dead to sin. How should we that are dead to sin live in it any longer, or any longer live in it? NIV makes a statement, and then it asks the question, we died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? But I think probably the best translation of the phrase is just died to sin. So what does it mean to have died to sin? Now look, we can reason our way through this, and it'll be fine. Death is a real event, right? Death is a permanent event. And death and life are completely contradictory, right? They're they're incompatible. They're on opposite extremes. By definition, a person cannot continually die. Death is a one-time event, if you will. Therefore, it's self-evident that once a person has died to a certain life, he can't still live in it. Once a person has died to a certain life, he still cannot live in it. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died still live in it? Now again, it's obvious that genuine Christians could still commit sin. But the issue is that for the Christian, he's not able to live in it. He doesn't take up residence. He doesn't go back into that state anymore, right? The Christian cannot habitually live in sin. The Christian cannot live in a habitual, unbroken pattern of sin. Now, put a mark right there and real quickly turn over, because we're going to come right back, but look over into 1 John. 1 John, chapter 3. And I think it speaks pretty clearly. 1 John, chapter 3, verse 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil. Right? Not just fall into occasional sin. No, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. The one who habitually practices sin, the one who continues in sin, shows to whom he belongs. The unsaved person practices sin, and sin is of the devil. But Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Christ came to deliver us from that realm. So you say, no one born of God, born a new creature with new nature, born into God's family, no one born of God practices sin. And he says it two times in there for emphasis. He can't habitually practice sin because it says his seed, and that's God's seed, abides in him. And seed really there means the new principle of life, that implanted seed, that being born again, that transformation of life. That's what John is saying. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil, and that no one who is born of God practices sin as a habitual pattern because his seed, God's seed, abides in him, that transformation of life. Therefore, he cannot sin because he's born of God. Right? That's exactly what Paul is saying back here in, 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 Romans, uh, in Romans 6. Right? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, again, in the Greek, that phrase died to sin is in the aorist tense, meaning that it's an act or an event that happened in the past once and it's completed. So to die, die to sin is not a process. Die to sin is not a process. It's a present 
possession, a present, or position, I should say, a present position, a present condition. Died to sin, listen, is a historical act in our past. It's a historical part of our past experience. So what exactly does it mean that a Christian has died to sin? Well, I think the answer is found back in chapter 5, verse 21. He says, as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Even as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So in what sense has the Christian died to sin? The Christian has died to the reign of sin. To the reign of sin, to the rule of sin. And again, the reign of sin in that verse is being contrasted with the reign of grace. For the Christian, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of his death, burial, resurrection, the reign of sin has come to an end for a believer's life. I'm going to say that again because it's important. For the Christian, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, the reign of sin has come to an end for all believers. Verse 20 says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Right? I mean, Paul's been working through that, through that in detail. If you want to just look back, I'm going to run through these very quickly. Verse 15, For by the transgression of one, the many died. That's the reign of sin. Much more, the grace of God and the, gra- the gift of by the grace of the one man, Christ Jesus, abound to the many. That's the reign of grace. The reign of sin, the reign of grace. Verse 16, the judgment arose on one from one transgression resulting in condemnation. That's the reign of sin. The free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. That's the reign of grace. Verse 17, by the transgression of one, death reigned through the one. Again, that's the reign of sin. Much more through who, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Again, that's the reign of grace. Verse 18, through the transgression, there, uh, one transgression resulted in condemnation of all men. That's the reign of sin. Through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. That's the reign of grace. Through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's the reign of sin. Even through one, uh, the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. That's the reign of, that's the reign of grace, right? The reign of sin, the reign of grace. If you are a believer in Christ, if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are justified by faith, then you are in Christ, you are standing in grace, and you're finished with that old room, the reign of sin. Again, now you're done with the reign of sin. Now you're under grace, under the reign of grace. Now, again, reign of sin means its rule, its power, its realm. And reign of grace means the very same thing, under its power, under its influence, under its force. So we in Christ have been removed from the controlling power of sin. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase, may it never be? How shall we who died in the reign of sin still live in it? The moment we're regenerated, the moment we're justified, we're completely dead to that realm, to that, that, to, to that reign of, of, of sin. We've been removed from that realm, and now in Christ, we who died to that reign of sin are, are dead to that. We can't live in that realm anymore. It's impossible. Now, I hear somebody in the background, maybe it's somebody in the back row, I don't know, people sitting in the back row like to say stuff, right? So how can you possibly say that? How can you, so now everybody's going to move up and make sure I'm not sitting in the back row next to me, right? How can you possibly say something like that? Not about the back row, but about the thing of sin. Because we still sin, right? We still feel the the presence of sin, the power of sin, the temptation of sin. How can you honestly say that we've died to sin, to its rule, to its reign, to its power? Good question. 
Here's the answer. And you got to listen. You have to differentiate between what is true of us positionally as a fact and how we feel about our experience. You have to differentiate between what is true of us positionally as a fact and what we feel or experience. Now, there's a tremendous difference between what we may feel to be true and what God says is absolutely true concerning us. Right? The apostle says that every person in the world is either in Adam or in Christ. Every person is either under the reign of sin, the rule of sin, or under the reign of the rule of grace. The Christian was at one time under Adam, or in Adam, under the reign of sin, now saved, justified, declared righteous, positively righteous, given that righteousness of Christ positionally. Now in Christ, the Christian is now new. He's transformed. He's under the reign of, under the reign of grace. The Christian has died to sin, completely to that uh, reign of sin and that reign of evil. Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Paul says again, may it never be. How should we die to sin and still live in it? So the Bible speaks to this issue and other passages of Scripture to help us understand the fact that in Christ, we've been removed from one kingdom and taken into another kingdom. Right? That's the idea. We've been taken from one kingdom into a completely different kingdom. In Christ, we've been taken out of the realm of, and the rule of sin and Satan, and we've been put under the realm and the rule of grace, the kingdom of grace. Colossians 1.13, God rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We used to be in that dominion, but we've been transferred from that dominion, no longer under that rule of sin, that authority, but now under God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are in the kingdom of grace, right? Over in Acts chapter 26, you don't have to turn there, I just briefly mentioned it, but when Saul is converted on the road to Damascus, he tells this story in Acts 26, the risen Christ gives him his job description, if you like. And he says, uh, get up on your feet. The purpose I've appeared, for this purpose I've appeared to you, to appoint you as a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you've seen, but also the things which will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. And here it is, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance amongst those who have been sanctified by faith in me. God says, look, I'm going to take you, Paul, to those who are under the power of Satan, those who are in his kingdom, those who are under his dominion, those whom he was tyrannizing over and terrorizing, reigning over them. And you're going to go preach. You're going to preach the gospel. And that gospel message is going to take people's eyes and it's going to open them. And they're going to be transferred from that domain of darkness to the domain of God, from the rule of Satan to the rule and the power of God and God's kindness and grace and be put into his kingdom. And that's exactly what Paul's trying to tell us here in this portion of scripture. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Because if, in, if you're in Christ, you're, you, you can't be under the control of sin. We, we, we're not subject to its power. Sin no longer controls us. It doesn't direct our destiny. Because we're no longer in Adam. We're, we're in Christ. And Christ now directs our destiny. It, it, it's the realm of grace. It, it's standing, uh, it's uh, standing under God's kindness. It's how shall we who died to sin still live in it? It's absolutely impossible. It's impossible. Because we're not in that realm anymore. We're not dead. We're alive. We're under the power of the influence of Christ. Look at verse 11, and I'll, and I'll be done here. Verse 11 out of Romans 6. 
That's why Paul says, even so consider, Romans 6.11, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body to obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. You're not under law, but under grace. Sin shall not be master over you. Right? You're now under the authority of grace. Once a person is justified, once God has guaranteed their glorification, meaning that God is going to progressively deliver them in life every day, more and more, completely from this power of sin that once was a part of our life, and more and more, each and every day, is going to continue to conform us to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's removed us from the realm of sin and death, where all we can do is sin. He's put us in the realm of grace, united us with his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, making us more into Christ-likeness, and one day he's promised to complete that process in glorification when we're presented before him without any spot or wrinkle. Right? Now, again, one other question, one, one objection is someone's going to say, well, look, if this is all true, how do, how do we fall into sin? How can a Christian fall into sin if this is all true? Right? If, again, the Christian has died to sin and we are to consider ourselves dead and not let sin reign over our mortal bodies, again, there's a difference between a position and realizing in your, you're in that position. And I'll give you a great analogy, and all of a sudden, the whole thing will make sense to you. How, 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 how do you get in this position where you let sin reign? Well, the analogy, I think, is very helpful for not understanding who you are. The analogy comes out of the American history of slaves back in the uh, 1860s, you know, 160 years or so. When the slaves were given their freedom, when they're emancipated by Lincoln, they, they had a very difficult time understanding their new position. They heard with their ears they were free. But many of them didn't realize their position had changed. And they just kept, many of them just kept living like slaves. The president gave them their freedom and they kept living in slavery. Right? For the Christian, in Christ, God has given you freedom. In Christ, you've been set free. You need to understand your position not your feeling, but understand your position and then begin to act on that position and leave, live like free men. Right? Live like freed men. Translated from one kingdom into the realm of another kingdom without power, now with the power of the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. We may feel... This is not true, but it's not what the Bible says. The Bible says it's absolutely true. Bible says we should all stand up and praise God and shout hallelujah, right? Because he's given us freedom. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? Can't. We have been set free by God's kindness from that realm that once dominated us. Does that mean that we don't struggle with sin? Now we struggle with it. We've got to fight the flesh. I got that, I got that part. But to be free, you've got to be first, you've got to know that you've been set free. And then you've got to start acting on that reality in your life. Our Father and our God, we're thankful. Thankful for the word, thankful for that truth, the reality that Christ has not only paid the penalty for us, but he's given us a new life. And we rejoice in that uh, truth. We rejoice in that wonderful fact and your kindness to us through the Savior. We love you. Thank you for these folks, Lord, and their uh, diligence to hang in there. And I just pray that you put all these truths uh, into their hearts and minds and we might all just continue to rejoice in your goodness towards us. In Christ. Thanks for a great day of worship and for the fellowship we have. In Jesus' name, amen.